Christ Community Church, located at 25th and Thomas Avenue in Portsmouth, Ohio. Christ Community meets on Saturday at 5 p.m. and Sunday at 10.30 a.m. For more information, visit www.christcommunity.net or check out our Facebook page. A couple of three things I want to just make clear. Uh, first of all, <clears throat> next Sunday afternoon, we're going to have a golf outing, and uh, I think the weather will be just about right. And we're raising money for a project in Uganda where that the <clears throat> currently they cook with charcoal and wood. And in and around the big city of Kampala, the capital, there's not going to be a tree left. And uh, tell everybody I said hi. Um, anyway, the result of that is that uh, we have found a a system developed by the Chinese where that they would take the uh, out in a rural area where they had no electricity, they would take the animal refuge and, and bodily waste, so on and so forth, put it into, collect it, put it into a system, creates gas, and they would use it to light their houses and so on and so forth with, uh, in lieu of electricity. Well, what we want to do there at Destiny, the children's home of 1,850 children, counting the babies, is, is they, we want to replace the charcoal and the wood with a gas system from the bodily waste of the 1,850 children and teachers and so on and so forth. That will save them $56 a day. And uh, because that's what they spend on wood and charcoal to cook with. They cook with, uh, with, in pots about this big around, yay deep, because you're cooking for 1,800 kids. So what we're, we're going to try to have next week maybe the banks out again where you can start saving your coins, because some of us have been anyway. And we've already raised about $4,500 uh, the, at the golf outing. We're going to use that to... Um, to create that system. It costs about $15,000. And it has about a 20-year life, so on and so forth. So uh, that's what we're looking at doing. And uh, so you start saving your coins, and we'll get you a little bank to put it in, blah, 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 blah. But I think this is what we're going to do. I, Alice Kay and I are thinking about taking $15,000 of our savings and just sending it to them so they can get started because we'll be going back to Uganda to teach next May, and we're hoping that it'll be up and functioning by then. We can bring you back pictures and so on and so forth. And then as the money comes in, we can replace it and keep us out of the poorhouse. Somebody's not very certain we're going to go to the poorhouse. I can tell that, okay? I'm not either. But anyway, second thing. Tomorrow night, the women have an event here that Alice Kay and some other women have worked really hard on, and in order to know how many tables to set up and to decorate and so on uh, tomorrow for tomorrow night, you women need to register so that and, and give us the, your names and how many are coming and da-da-da-da-da so that they can uh, tomorrow morning get that all set up and prepared for tomorrow night. So make sure before you leave here, ladies, that you register and, and your name and how many may be coming with you. That's important. 
those flyers that you see on your seats, we want you to take them home with you and give them to somebody. Because what we try to be as a church is we want people who attend here faithfully, call this their church home, to know what they believe and why they believe it and be able to tell someone else what they believe and why they believe it. So that's, and, and, and we want to scatter that out. And so every year we bring in an expert in defending the Bible and teaching people how to propagate the message of Jesus Christ. And, um, and, and I want to say, repeat what I've told you before. You, those of you who are first-time visitors, be sure and stop at the first-time visitor table. We've got a nice little gift for you there. Okay, now I think that's, I think that's the early stuff I needed to get out of my system. This is, uh, by the way, uh, happy anniversary. This is number 46. And that... Yeah. In those 46 years, we started years ago, and, and on the 20th of September was the actual date when we had our first preaching session. Um, we, were co- we were committed to some very simple and fundamental issues. Number one... We wanted to preach and teach the Bible because in many of the traditional churches, they were moving away from teaching the Bible and teaching that man is lost and can only go to heaven by faith in Jesus Christ. And the church was turning into a social organization, a a kind of a religious lion's club. And so we wanted to fill that gap because we want people to know they're going to go to heaven when they die because for sure you're going to die. So we want you to know that. I know in whom I believed and persuaded that he's able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day, that day that you will meet him face to face. So uh, we, wanted, we said we didn't want, we weren't going to use any creeds. We have no creed but Christ, no book but the Bible. We don't claim to be the only Christians, just Christians only. We believe in the unity of the body of Christ. There's only one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is in you all, so on and so forth. And, and, and so the church really should just be united. All those who believe the Bible should be united as one. In essentials, we said we should have unity. In non-essentials, liberty. But in all things, love. So that we came in to fill that void with that simple message. And we've been trying to preach the Bible ever since. Now, we have some people who come in and say every once in a while, you need to do more uh, community action, community stuff. And that is important. But it's not nearly as important as making sure people go to heaven when they die. Because if you've done a whole lot of... Because you see, you don't have to be a Christian to do good deeds. But you have to be a Christian to go to heaven. So our primary purpose for existing is to make sure that when you die, you're going to go to heaven. That's number one. Nothing even close to that. And if you're here this morning and you're not certain you're going to go to heaven when you die, you better get it fixed because it's fixable. Now, uh, so I, I, wanted to, I wanted to get that out of the way because when we look at the Scripture, I want to talk about a living church. And we want to be a living church church. How do you tell the difference between a living church and a dead church? 
Because actually, the Bible talks about that. It's very clear. Uh, And and you can read this in your your sermon notes. It it simply says this. And this this is the church at Sardis. There are seven churches mentioned here in the first three chapters of the book of Revelation. They were churches that that John, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, selected as representative churches of all of those who were in the Roman world. And they're representative of the church that exists even today. Listen to what he says now, and this is the reason why it's important to talk about what is a living church. He says to the church of Sardis, I know your deeds. And so they were doing good community stuff. I know your deeds. You have the reputation of being alive. And always in Scripture, when you run into a but, you got a problem. But you're dead. Reputation of being alive. Why were they, did they have a reputation of being alive? Because they were doing lots of good things in the community, and everybody says, oh, they're like Christ's community. If that church ever went away, we would, we would really miss them. And we want to be that kind of a church. We really do. But keep on reading. He says, Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die. So what he's telling us here is that it is possible to have the reputation and the appearance of being a live church, but in the eyes of God, you're dead on a hammer. Why? Why? Well, in these, and I'm not going to take the time to read each one of them. You can, but it boils down to this. There are only two of these church, seven churches that are mentioned that he says he, he doesn't say anything bad about. Other five, he just cooks them good. Here's what he says. The churches that are poor and have nothing are alive because... They rely on God and not the world. They rely on God. And when you read these passages, you will see that this really is true. Let's let's read just the part here from the church in Philadelphia. He said, These are the words of him who is the first and the last. In other words, this is God talking. Who died and came to life again, meaning Jesus Christ, God in the flesh. I know your afflictions. I know your poverty. And yet you're rich. How can you be almost hungry, and be rich. That's what he's saying. You can be. And here's the reason. You're relying on God instead of the things of this world. Now, you and I both know that all of us have a tendency. If I asked three different young men this week, three different young men, different walks of life, If you could have whatever you really desired in life, you would get it in this life, what would it be? You know what all of them said? Every last one of them. We'd like to be rich. We'd like to be rich. And the church has done that. Do you know that the church, when it had no buildings in the first two or three centuries, grew faster than it's ever grown since? And they started building buildings if, because they said the pagans have beautiful temples and we don't have anything. So we want to be like them. See, they, they got the thing turned upside down. We want the pagans to be like us. 
And we want to be like Jesus. So that's, that's the difference. Now, you know, this, uh, there are several other passages that I could work on here, especially in the third chapter, that we could talk about uh, that, that are representative. And, and we really, I hope that you'll go look at them and see, because uh, I think it's important for, for us, and I'm going to try to make a case for this in a few moments, that we examine ourselves and to see where we stand as individuals as well as a congregation. Periodically re-examine ourselves and see where we are and, and how we're doing. The church at Laodicea is one I want to mention before we go on. This is starting at um, verse 14 in chapter 3. He said, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that they are neither cold nor hot. I wish they were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot or cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. It's like cold coffee. Here's what they say. You say, I'm rich. I've acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you don't realize that you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. That's in the eyes of God. So, we have to look at ourselves critically to see where, where we are. And the best way to do that is to properly understand communion, believe it or not. Because can you, you may or may not know that in the early church, they seldom had preaching. They always had Bible reading. And then maybe they would discuss it. But they always had communion. Always. And where the non-Catholic church has really screwed up through the years is in the Reformation era. They said, you know, if we had communion every Sunday, we'd be like the Catholics, and we don't like the Catholics, and so we're not going to do it, so we'll just have communion every once in a while. Well, the Catholics were right. They were, do, they were right on... Right. They called it Mass, and they do some things that I think are a little screwed up, but... But at least on when to have it, they were right. And so, you know, the, the real big issue between us and the, and the Catholic Church as far as Mass is concerned is they actually believe that, the, that the, the bread and the wine, rather than being emblems that represent, actually turn into the body and the blood of Christ. And the pagan world was looking at them and saying, these guys are cannibals. And so it became a real difficult issue. Now... So I want you to turn, if you got your Bible, or you can look at it in, on your little, little devil instruments there that everybody uses, uh, in the 11th chapter of, uh, of the book of, of uh, 1 Corinthians. Now, the early church messed up communion too. They really did, but they always had it. And the reason they didn't have preachers uh, preaching every, every Lord's Day is they didn't always have a preacher. Now, they did have preaching periodically because we know in the 20th chapter of the book of Acts, the apostle Paul came to town and he preached until midnight. So I just figured, well, if he did it, I can do it if they'll just hang with me. You guys are asleep. You didn't a bit more hear what I said than anything. I'm going to keep you here till midnight, I said. And you probably need it. Now, or, or you'd have caught on, you know. I, in la-la land there somewhere. 
All right. Now, what does communion do? Communion, for because a lot of people that gathered in the early church couldn't read and write. And so someone who could would read the Scriptures. The Apostle Paul told Timothy, you be faithful in reading the Scriptures to the congregation. That was the Old Testament. I want you to do that. But the one thing they always did is have communion. Always. Because communion preaches the gospel to individuals who can't read and write. And we'll see that. What is the gospel? Gospel is death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Somebody asks you, what's the, what's the good news? That's the good news. You go to the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians, he goes, one, two, three, for those of you who are slow learners. This is the way it's done. Jesus was crucified, resurrected, and went to heaven. Now, the church at Corinth had really messed this up because what they did is they usually met in the evenings because many of them were slaves, had to work through the day regardless of what day of the week it was, and so they got together in somebody's house and they had a carry-in supper. Now they did this because when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, it was at a Passover meal. And so to emulate what Jesus did, they had a carry-in supper. And, and they would eat their supper, and at the end of the supper, they would use the, 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 the wine and the bread to celebrate the Lord's Supper. That carrion dinner was called an agape meal, a love meal. But they had really messed it up because the congregation was made up of wealthy people and slaves and da-da-da-da-da. And so the wealthy people would bring in something really good to eat, and they would eat it and not share it with the poor people, and the poor people came hungry, left hungry. And so the Apostle Paul just really excoriates them for, for having, uh, being unloving in a love meal. And, and, and this, that's the reason here in the 11th chapter he addresses the subject. So uh, he tells us, and I'm going to skip around a little bit here in the 11th chapter. First of all, he says, this, the reason you come together is to have the Lord's Supper. That's the reason you get together to start with. And then he says, one of the things that you're to do before you eat and drink is to examine yourself. Now, the natural man, the, 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 the new believer or the unconverted, he has a tendency to judge other people and he compares himself to other people usually that are worse than he is. That's kind of the way we do it. The spiritual man, the godly man, has a different standard. He compares himself in self-examination to Jesus Christ. There was an old guy in a little church up in Illinois where I preached for a while at Prairie Green Church, and, and, his, and he had a wonderful name. His name was actually Bishop McMurray. He was bishop. And so he was a bishop before he was a bishop. And in that, that's clever. And so... And he, he had no children, and Alice Kay and I were just treated like his children. And he told me one day, he said, Brother Scott, you're a good preacher. Well, I, yeah, I, I thought, I'm getting set up here. Anytime anybody brags on you, wait for the but. And he had one. And he said, but there's a difference between being a good preacher and being a godly man. And he said, that's where you need help. I was still in my 20s, and, and he said, here's what I do, and maybe it'll work for you. 
He said, I use the, the fifth chapter of the book of Galatians where he lists the fruit of the Spirit, which are the character qualities of Jesus. And I use them like a yardstick. And every day of my life, I read through them and I look at myself to see how well I'm measuring up. Because the ultimate desire of a mature believer is to, to develop yourself spiritually till you get to the extent where others can see Christ in you. The Apostle Paul said, it, it is Christ in you that's your hope of glory. So we want to mature to the place. And so how do you do that? You evaluate, you examine yourself. How am I measuring up to the standard? And the standard is none other than Jesus Christ himself. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain, the Apostle Paul said. That should be your objective. Now, most of us will have to admit we ain't there yet. And there are times, there are really times when uh, we're in a, even though you, that you, you're making real headway, there are times when you fall out of bed and you need to repent and so on and so forth. But self-examination and, and, and what they do here, and let me read it for you so that you'll know that I'm not pulling your leg. Verse 28 says, a man ought to examine himself before he eats the bread and drinks the cup. A man ought to look at himself. And what do we do? We compare ourselves to Jesus Christ. The natural man points to the other guy and says, well, I'm as good as he is. The unbeliever said, I'm as good as some of those people who go to church. And they are. Because some of us are pretty ratty at times. Anybody want to volunteer? Anyway, go ahead. Now, let's go to the second thing. We not only should examine our, our, ourselves, but we should submit ourselves to self-criticism. Now, this isn't a sick, uh, the, the psychologists who like to tell us what to do, and they haven't got sense enough to, to, to wipe their nose when it's running down their mouth. They, they, they really have messed up the world. They think any type of, of self-criticism is really bad. They're the ones who say, we've got to get rid of sin. They're so dumb. Let me tell you how dumb they are. Psychologists are a whole lot like, uh, what do they call these back poppers when your back hurts? Uh, chiropractors. They're like chi you go to a chiropractor, and they do some good work, I suspect. I've never been to one. But if you go to a chiropractor, he tries to tell you, Here, here's, here's what it costs you for one visit, or I'll sell you 12, and you can keep coming back. That's the way psychologists do they say, well, you've got this emotional problem and you're not very healthy and you, you, you keep coming back for the next uh, 10, 27 years and maybe by the 28th one you, you'll be making some headway. And by the way, here's what it costs you and I hope you have insurance, so on, so on, so forth. Now, compared to a preacher, to, here's the way the preacher does it. Man, this is sin. Let's get it forgiven and it's over with and under the blood of Jesus Christ and it's gone. Now, which one's got the best deal? And we just take one offering. And some of you don't put it in the bucket then. So you get to talk about a free deal. So what we need to understand here is God knows this is the best road to go. You don't need to keep coming back and coming back and coming back except to the communion table. And I feel sorry for some of these churches who just have communion every six months, every month, every whatever. They've completely missed the point. And you can mess it up if you're not awful careful too. Because here's what he says. If you do this right, if you will 
self-examine yourself and criticize yourself and look at the areas where you need to measure up. If you'll do that, you can avoid judgment. Whose judgment? God's judgment. I don't give a hoot about yours. Here's what he says. Let's look at the book. Here's what he writes. He says, well, let's start back at 27, and I'll finish this up, and, and I don't have to keep going back. Therefore, and remember whenever the Apostle Paul says, therefore, he's saying everything else I've said before is leading up to this, so open at least one of your ears and pay attention. Therefore, whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of Christ. What is an unworthy manner? An unworthy manner is when you are pointing a finger at the other guy and saying how good you are instead of pointing it at Jesus Christ and saying how can I measure up to his standard. That's exactly what he's saying. So a man ought to examine himself before he eats and drinks. And if anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. What kind of judgment do you get? It's really pretty tough. He says, this is why many of you are weak and sick, and a number of you are dead. Falling asleep is another term for dead. You're dead. But, if you'll judge yourself, if you'll examine yourself, if you will criticize only yourself, we would not come under judgment. But when we are judged, when we mess up and do it wrong, when we are judged, we're being disciplined by God so that we'll not be condemned with the world. The judgment of God is tough stuff. And we like to say, you know, we just kind of shut God out of the business when it comes to being sick and da-da-da-da-da. Big mistake. You not only need to look at ourselves, then we need to confess what we see is wrong and needs to be right. Who do you confess it to? Be careful. See, the Catholic Church did this in a, in a formal way. I've had Catholic people go with me uh, uh, to Israel, and we have communion when we're there on the weekend, but they seldom take it because they say we have to go co to confession before we take communion. And so they don't take it because they haven't. And I said, well, you can confess to me. And I'll confess to you because the Bible says in James 5, confess your faults one to another and pray for one another that you might be healed. You're a priest. I'm a priest. And that would get uncomfortable with that if you don't have your collar on backwards. I've been thinking about getting me a collar like that so that I can find out what they've done wrong and hold it against them. And not just checking to see if you're awake now. Don't get all bent out of shape. But he says, and, and there's two different kinds of confession in the Bible. There's the confession of the unbeliever who comes to Christ, and his confession is, I'm a sinner. I'm separated from God. Even though I'm physically alive, I'm spiritually dead. I need to come alive in Jesus Christ, and I'm a sinner. I want to be saved. And then there's the believer over here who... Even though he is a believer, periodically falls short and sins. Sin is a, is a Greek word that means shooting at a target and coming, falling short of it. 
the Greek word harmatium, it just means a, 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 um, an archer who falls short of the mark. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And so here's what the believer, here's what the unbeliever does. He confesses with his mouth what he believes in his heart that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And he says, and, and that belief is what God recognizes as the road to salvation. Okay, here's, here's another guy who was a Christian. The Christian does, messes up somewhere. And, and so in that area where he messes up, he knows he needs some help. So you go to somebody you can trust. Underline, circle, big letters, trust. Don't go confessing to a windy old uh, Betty who can't wait to tell everybody what's going on. Be careful. Go to a spiritually mature person if you're going to confess. And know that they will pray for you so that you can overcome the reason that you need to confess. We bear each other's burdens, Paul said, and thus fulfill the law of Christ, which is love. There are actually two different Greek words in the New Testament for this, this separation. One is a verb, uh, and it, it, it's in what's called aorist tense, which means up to a point or from a point on. It's called point action. This is what the unbeliever does. All of his sins up to that point are forgiven, dead, gone, will not be held against him by the judge of heaven and earth, even God himself. They're gone under the blood of Jesus Christ. He's got it made in the shade. And so he confesses his sin. He's the guy that we take up here and we take the old dead carcass and we bury it and we call it baptism. So that he can walk in newness of life, the scripture says. Okay, here's the believer over here. We got a different Greek word for him. It, it's in linear action. It has no beginning, no end. Why? Because we never get to the place where we're totally without selfishness. The sin of, a, of, of the biggest problem for Christians in the maturing process is selfishness. To mature so that we cease to be concerned about ourselves and put the other person above ourselves like Jesus did. And that word is metamelamide. I expect you to remember though. I'm just telling you that so you know I'm educated. I don't give a hoot about it. But it is important that you get the idea. All right? So that there's hope for both. But both need to confess and both need to get to the next place which is repentance. Now, can anybody be saved that hasn't repented? Can anybody be saved who hasn't repented? Don't know, do you? I do. You know why I know? That's why I don't baptize babies. I baptize their parents. They're the sinners. Babies can't repent. They don't even have anything to repent about. But the scripture says, except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. Now, if that doesn't mean you're going to go to hell on a skateboard if you don't repent, I don't know what it means. That sounds like good Kentucky, northern Kentucky English to me. And so we, we baptize Adult believers, people who've gotten to the place where they know that they've sinned and confess their sins, feel sorry for their sins because you can't repent if you don't feel sorry for what you've done wrong. Can't do it. And so he says in the scripture here, in plain everyday language, he says that godly sorrow leads to repentance. Repentance means turn around and go in the other direction. 
I've been doing what I want to do all of my life. And that road is straight to hell. But when I repent, I do 180 and I'm on the road to heaven. And we want you on the road to heaven. And we don't want you leaving here today until you know you are. And that comes as a result of having believed that Jesus is the Christ and have confessed your sins and that you repented of your sins and you've come to put your confidence and follow Jesus Christ. All right? Now then, so we've gotten you repented. Let's talk about a little bit before we quit here. Let's talk a little bit about what happens at renewal. If you were to pick a time here at church when we gather together, which is the happiest time you ever had. Everybody happy! When is that? I'll bet you money that if we had a video of, of the church services back over the last year, that it would be when somebody is baptized. You know why? It's the, it is the picture of a new birth. What happens when a baby is born? Heck, we tell everybody. Anymore, even if it's illegitimate, we tell everybody. We got us a baby. And anymore, about half of them are illegitimate. But we celebrate anyway. Why? Because it's new life. New life. Baby didn't do anything wrong. Oversexed parents. And a culture that promotes it. So, what do we do here? Here's the, here is the believer. Here is the person who rededicates their life. Here, you know, and, and, and here they come up out of it. And everybody starts going, yay! And I even heard some of them up here hollering other stuff. Right on, all that, you know. And we got a, Alice Kay and I got a message the other day. A little girl that we've been talking to. She's just a sweetheart, but she's lost. She's got hardware on her. She can never get on an airplane, I don't think. She would light up the world. She's got it on her tongue. She's got it in her nose. She's got it on her eyebrows. And some other places that I can't even tell you about because I haven't seen. And I ain't going to look for her. But that's the way it is. Well, we get the message. She has accepted Christ and wants to come down here and be baptized. Her. I'm going to hold her down to the bubbles quit. <laughs> but there's new life in Jesus Christ, and that's when we celebrate, right? What's wrong with that? Now, the difference between a dead church is you have a lot of good works, but you don't celebrate new life. We want to say, that's the reason I fuss at you guys all the time. Go get people and bring them in, and we'll get them saved. Go get them. Hey, look, I was taught by an old preacher a long time ago. I had some really good old-time preachers who just almost adopted me. Old J.D. Murch, who wrote the book Christians Only. Joe Dampier, he used to come and see me. He had a belly about, I had a voice like God. And he would, they just looked after me and helped me and corrected me and encouraged me. And I owe them a lot. I don't know what I brought that up for. There's something back or something. Anyway, you know, it, it is important that we get to the place where we realize 
And they taught me the preacher is the shepherd. That's what the Bible says we are. We're shepherds of the flock. Chop, flock means sheeps. Sheeps. And shepherds don't have baby sheeps. Sheeps have baby sheeps. So sheep, go get some babies. That means new converts. Bring them in. We'll tell them about Jesus and we'll have the excitement of seeing them baptized into Jesus Christ. Not into a church, but into Christ. Churches don't get you to heaven. Churches are gathering of people who want to get there. Christ gets you to heaven. I'm going to close with this little bit of an illustration. When I was a young man, if I ever got into trouble, well, I never got into trouble. Chuck, my brother, he's always in trouble. But anyway, I was, I had a car wreck down close to Vanceburg once on the way to a little church where I was preaching. And right across the street, I took out five panels on a board fence and five or six mailboxes, and you know, it did pretty good. I hit some ice, I said, and, uh, and so I go over to, to this old doctor's house, and I call home. I call my daddy. I said, Dad, I had a wreck. He said, where are you? I told him. He said, well, just sit tight. I'll be there directly. You know, every time I needed that old man, he never criticized me. He never said anything unkind. He never blamed me. I'll be there to help it in a little bit. Hour or so here, come chugging up the road about 10 miles under the speed limit. So that's, that's why I never had a wreck. Why I never got a ticket. I got two in one day. That's another story. But anyway, I've always dreamed about this. And it's just a dream. I have not one verse of Scripture to support it. But I've always dreamed. When I die, because all of us are a little bit afraid of the death process, because we ain't never done it before. And when you've never experienced something before, there's a degree of anxiety that goes with it, if you're really honest. And the Bible, after all, says the last enemy that we face is death, and so, you know, you shouldn't view it as something that's really good. But I've always dreamed about this. The minute I shut my eyes, the heart stops, the blood quits flowing, the brain is dead, and old Scott leaves this worn-out, really good old body. And I cross that river that an old gray-headed guy who's always been there, will say, welcome home. I want to show you around. Eh, I know it's not really. Maybe it doesn't work that way, but it sure helps me. But there's a beautiful song that says we're going to be met by Jesus and he's going to show us around. That ain't bad either, is it? How would you like to have Jesus as a tour guide? Yeah. But you see, that's the good news, isn't it? That's the good news. And we want to be a living church where we see not only faith, repentance, confession, baptism, but we see that reunification of godly people happy with each other, happy with the Lord. And we come together and we just never miss communion because that's where we experience the gospel again every week as we come to know the Lord. Well, I'm done.
I'm done for today. I should have kept you here till midnight because I can tell by looking you need it. But I'm not going to do that. I simply want to say this. If when you die, you don't have Jesus or your daddy or whatever to meet you across that old river, then I would ask you, please, don't leave this building until you know for sure that someone's going to meet you and show you around heaven. Is that a good deal? Lord, I ask you to bless this gathering of people in the name of Jesus Christ. And how I pray that no one leaves through those doors back there until they know that for them to die is gain. I commit them again to your care and keeping in Jesus' name. And all the people said, God bless you. You're free to go. Be generous with those who are less fortunate than you. Fill up the buckets on the way out.